ever wonder what it is that's holding you back keeping you from getting to the next level everything starts within your own mind your thoughts attitude and determination are all essential for success ladies and gentlemen this is the main idea podcast Diving deep to uncover how determination and mindset steamroll adversity. And now your host, creator of the Ski System and Trainer of the Year nominee, Abe Maynard. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Main Idea Podcast. Today, I sit down with Rachel Mariotti, who is formerly a coach at Equinox, where she received the Equinox Fusion Award for being the most prolific coach in personal training and group fitness. She is a mental health guide with Athleta's community brand, AthleteWell, and she runs her own business training private clients and separately conducting mental health therapy. Rachel was named Women's Health Most Influential Trainer and has been featured on Good Morning America as a fitness expert. But beyond fitness, Rachel received her master's in psychology from NYU and is a breath of fresh air when it comes to analyzing mental health and its complexities. In this episode, we cover everything from the clinical side of mental health to vaccine resistance and how fear shapes our choices. Without further ado, the great and powerful Rachel Mariotti. It is so good to see you again. It's been honestly like, I think the better part of five years. Yeah, the last time I saw you was Santa Monica, I think. Yeah, actually, like literally at Equinox, which we have since both completely left. So what I mean, what's happened in your life since then? You went back to school, right? You got your master's in psychology. Yeah, yeah that wow. Five years ago was 2016. <laughs> yeah. That was right at the beginning of a quarter life crisis, if you will. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, the reason I was coming out to LA was potentially working out there mm-hmm. and um i was going to work with this guy gunner peterson oh, was friends with acquaintances with and um and it didn't work out and so i came back to new york and really just <laughs> tried to devise a plan of what i'm going to do mm-hmm. and i got into graduate school i don't know what month i saw you but i got into grad school for psychology and that started the grad school and continued at Equinox. But really at that time, figuring out an exit plan or my next step at Equinox, which I attempted to go up and hire management and be maybe a director of programming of some sorts, um, but still train people. And that didn't work out. So I left and just started private training while I was finishing school and starting to see clients for mental health. And that was uh, all in a matter of a couple of years. I graduated 2017 and then it became a blend of private training, private mental health sessions. And um, yeah, that's, that's still what I do today, just in a different fashion. Well, what was that ex- experience like? Because I've, I've felt something similar. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. But when you were at Equinox and you were trying, like you said, to go up a level, like it, I feel like in the personal training industry, especially within the walls of Equinox, there's a pretty awesome path to advance and to collect more continuing education, level yourself up financially in terms of control of your business, all these kind of things. But then it seems that you get to this place where if you are highly driven, motivated, like go-getter type person, you hit a ceiling in a sense based on what you can then do. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Um, well, I think we all hit a ceiling in any industry. And so I think we hit a ceiling in any, in just life, (laughs) you know? So I think, I think, I don't know, it was a sense of the same feeling when I got, when I worked in advertising, before I was at Equinox, I worked in advertising for three years. And that one was more intense on how bad I wanted to leave. (laughs) You know, it was, it was constant phone calls to my mom, like this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. She's like, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then I was like, 
no, 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 I hate it. And um, I switched companies in advertising. And then that felt better to make a switch. Felt like I was doing something. And then not enough. Went, started taking a course at NYU for psychology. It's just not part of a program, just a just one-off class. And that was kind of like, all right, why am I doing this stuff? I started just observing why I'm making these choices. And it's very subconscious. I've been very uh, connected with the subconscious. I don't know why my series popping up. Apple is- it's Your, your technological subconscious is trying to get involved in the conversation. <laughs> Apple's the, the they're the, uh, they capitalize on the subconscious. So yeah, anyways, I, um, I just paid attention to my, my thought patterns and with Equinox, I felt more and more, it felt more and more undesirable to go to work and to, I love my clients. My clients kept me alive and sane and I still have a handful of them that I trained at 50th, but, um, yeah, the corporate structure and, you know, kind of feeling like a robot in some capacity and not feeling like I have my own expression. This is what happens when you work at a corporation. This is what you sign up for. So I, it's not, a, it's not against Equinox. They have a well-oiled machine and it's, I think it's a great, I think it's a great organization to learn as a trainer. Absolutely. And I think if you stay there for 10 years, you could still have a great life for, or longer. And there's people that do. Yeah. It, it could be, it could be much worse. Let's just put it that way. Fair. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just like you, you know, sometimes there's something needs to happen for the change to happen, mm. like a pandemic, but um, it was just a rip the bandaid off the, you know, it was a rip the bandaid off moment uh, to leave. And I just kept saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And it was just more of an out of body experience when I actually did it. I didn't know of it. I didn't really know I was going to walk up to the office that day and say, I'm done. And I just did it. You had everything else fell into place. Had you established anything else like setting yourself up for when you were going to go? I mean, it sounds like impulsive. You're saying (laughs) it does sound compulsive. No, I, I had, I had planned, I had been training people privately. Mm -hmm. I had plans on going to a certain gym. I had conversations with clients for, for months but it was just a lingering, like, when are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? So it was planned, but the day that I did it wasn't the day that I planned on doing it. Fair. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so when you departed from that, um, I assume you then moved into like more of a private practice, right? Like you're, you're taking, whether they were pre-existing clients or new clients that you acquired, but you're doing this now on your own. At that point, were you starting to integrate mental health coaching into your practice from a professional setting. Like I know on a day-to-day, we all do some degree of keeping the mind topic of conversation when you're helping someone make a transition or make a change or lose weight, build muscle, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. When did you start to integrate that professional practice into your training practice? Well, to be clear, my training clients only get training from me and my mental health clients are separate people separate practice. So they're both exclusive. They're not combined. Although I did have clients where I would separate new clients that I was testing out a theory of training followed by mental health. Okay. And, um, it would be 45 minutes, a little transition and then 45 minutes of, well, 40 and 40 of training and mental health. Cause you could get as much as you want done in a 40 minute training session. Agreed. hundred percent co-signed. <laughs> so, and, um, you know, that's, that's been proven with CrossFit and other classes, but you know, the, then we transition and sit down talk about mental health, whatever they want to put on the table. And usually it's people going through a big transition or coming to terms with something. Um, and we make an action plan based off of that. I, I enjoyed that, but at the same time, I wasn't really excited as much about it. So I'm like, ah, I like keeping them separate. It feels more 
I could get more done just focusing on mental health, just focusing on training. Um, so my training clients really have been with me since Equinox days and they all are in my training camp and, yep. and mental health clients. I started, I started as a professional in a clinic. You're good. I can hear you. Yeah. So when I was in school, uh, second year of this program, you get an internship, you work at a clinic of your choice. And now a lot of people that come into the program, I had, uh, I think there were like 30 to 40 people in my graduating class at NYU. And we all came from different backgrounds, all in different ages. Most of us were in our twenties, um, late twenties, early thirties. And then you had some people later in their life, 40, 50, that, that um, wanted to change in their life and become a social worker or a therapist. And, um, and, and a lot of the, the students that come into a mental health program, from what I understand, had gone through their own mental health struggle or awakening or experience. We all have, but it was, a, it was they held on to that moment to bring them into a place where they, they wanna go out and help other people that experience something similar. Um, not surprising. And we see, so we see that uh, with like alcoholics anonymous and stuff like that too, is you get sure. sober and then it's an impactful experience. You then want to share and help other people elevate through that. And your experience sure. is one that you cannot go get certified in, you yeah. know, in how to get sober yeah. from drug addiction, for example. I think it's, it's that simple on when you want to do something more desirable in your life. It doesn't have to be this miraculous chemistry for it to happen it, it's really that simple you had an experience you want to help people that's all you need you don't need some degree or license i mean you can't i have a whole other spiel on that but it just that it could be that simple um i digress the people in this program you know, the, when we decide to get an internship, uh, they give you a selection of clinics that NYU is partnered with. And whether you want to go into alcohol addiction or domestic violence or you want to work with teenagers or you want to work in a school, you have these options. And I went more general. I just wanted to work with people um, that, that need a therapist and could fall under the, usually it falls under anxiety or depression some type of personality disorder i didn't want to specify with alcoholics i felt like that wasn't i don't know i don't know i didn't it didn't resonate with me um or domestic violence didn't resonate with me not that i would i would be opposed to seeing people who experienced that i i think i was better off going more general and um proximal to 50th street equinox <laughs> so that was two deciding factors so I ended up working at 66 and West End, which is near Broadway by Lincoln Center. And I was one stop away from 50th on the one train. So I would pop back and forth from 50th up to the clinic, see a few clients, go up to the clinic, see one mental health client or two, come back, see more training clients. And that, that was my thing. Um, and in the beginning, you know, it was, it, it's a psychoanalytic clinic. So the, Alan Grossman and his son, Mark, run uh, New York Counseling and Guidance Services up on 66. And they, they are, Alan's in his 70s, great guy, trained psychoanalytically. Uh, psychoanalysis is the foundation of psychotherapy and just your therapists in general. Most therapists are learning off of the basis of psychoanalysis, which is, is Freud and um, you know, Freud focused a lot on body and had tied hysteria to ailments in the body, which is fascinating. I mean, pretty genius in my opinion. And it kind of connects your two worlds, right? Because it's bringing your understanding and coaching of the physical body to that of the mental. Yeah. In a very, very nuanced way. I mean, working with the body 
and training somebody is very superficial level, surface level. Understanding mental health from a body perspective is much more nuanced. And I've boiled it down. I don't like using that phrase, but I've come, I've come back to the phrase stress management and energy management. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole world I can dive into with, um, fear, love, uh, doubt, uh, stress comparison, you know, these are things that cause blockages in the body and what we attach to, including our thoughts, we can attach to our thoughts, which is a disorder. It, it causes a hysteria of some sort. And when you have hysteria, which could be used, it could be, you know, replaced with anxiety, that word, um, you uh, start to burn energy in a harmful way. So real quick, when when you say blockages, what do you mean by blockage in the body? Are you talking like a a physical blockage on like a synapse that no longer allows uh, impulse to transfer from one to the other? Like what is a blockage actually? I'm not a scientist. I don't know physiologically what what blockage would mean, but I I would say when your breath stops or shortens Mm -hmm. and we know that the breath can bring harmony to the body. It could ground you. Mm. It could uh, literally release tension in your brain. It could um, give you more clarity. And, and there's, there's studies on this. And there's, you know, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's in Tim Ferriss's podcast, but you just listened to talk about, talks about vision and breath. Mm-hmm. When we see something, it causes an internal response and it either, you know, shortens the breath as a stress response or, or makes us feel more relaxed. And when we feel more relaxed, our pupils actually dilate and we have more periphery we have more perspective. We feel relaxed. We feel calm. There's more flow. Totally. And we become stressed when we're talking, even right now we're in a stressed state. We're thinking mm-hmm. we, what he called, we go into soda straw vision, soda straw pupils get smaller. We get more focused. We, um, our brain starts to focus and our breath starts to shorten. So in a sense, bl- blockage could be more of a negative way of looking at it. But when we fear something, when we doubt ourselves, when we uh, cut off or limit the ability to receive love, essentially, we're cutting through a lot of stuff. I could, I could say, you know, when we want to just be happy and positive, but really what we're trying to do is seek love and care and support. When we have fear and doubt, we're limiting ourselves to receiving love, which is a which is uh, what makes us feel relaxed and comforted and, and in control of some, in some it, So in those, uh, I, I find these points interesting because to some degree there's benefits to these sensations, right? Like fear and anxiety from an evolutionary standpoint are in some case, not in all, but in some cases positives, right? Like if you didn't fear the animal coming your way, you wouldn't, your body wouldn't, get into that state where it would pupils dilate, you get focused, you get more brain attention on what's going on. You can make a sharper decision. If you didn't fear the edge of the cliff, you wouldn't anticipate the fall and stop yourself from going off it. Right. So there's on one side of it, there has to be like positive factors that are a result of fear, but are you talking more on like maybe like an emotional level person to person? And on, on an emotional level, individually, like if I fear failure, for example, then I'm going to limit my willingness to take on a risk, let's say in my job or my life. Or if I fear that I'm not like worth it, 
that I may not put myself in a position to meet a person that's going to meet me where I'm at and, and then have a wonderful relationship or something, for example. Uh, I'm talking about, yes, the, more of the latter. Uh, I think to, to speak to your first point, yes, we will, uh, I can argue that we'll never get rid of the threat response mm -hmm. in order to survive. That's why there are 8 billion humans on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> We're now living in offices and not needing to worry about those things. Right. The, the, the survival now is dealing with our own mind. And, um, you know, it, always, it, it comes down to finding the middle ground between too much too soon, too, too little too late. Right now, I could say that we're probably, I don't know which one we would fall under, but right now we don't need to worry about a saber-toothed tiger. I, I, I'm sick of hearing that in books. Like, let's talk about the psychological war that we all um, have to manage with living our lives and dealing with people and dealing with being connected to millions of people now. That is a, I've always found that fascinating that if you look at like technology has allowed us to connect and be connected to an amount of people that is so far beyond our scope of recognition and historically so far beyond any type of cohort that we've ever been connected to at all. Even if, you know, I look to my parents and how many, how many people do they keep in touch with really? from their childhood, very few, maybe one, maybe two. Uh, we are now in a, you know, at, at 32 over the next 10 years, you know, maybe more than 60 people I know could pass away. That's not even an amount of people that anyone knew at all, just in general previously. Yeah. And the psychological, I guess, like the trauma that occurs with those events naturally will be magnified by how many you experience right. and ultimately maybe dumbed down because now, you know, when one or two deaths happen in your lifetime from someone you really care about, that's really impactful. When 90 deaths or a hundred deaths of people, you know, plus an unlimited amount of deaths yeah. just happening in general. Now, what does your brain, does your brain actually know how to handle that? No, no, <laughs> no. And it's, it would be, it would be, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have souls if we knew how to prepare for that. Right. You know, there's a reason why being a human being is an, an amazing thing because we have the capacity to feel. And if we can prepare for all of that, then what's life worth living? Right. You know, why is it worth living if we can have the exact way to respond? And, you know, we would, we would might as well just, Fast forward 300 years from now, and we all have a Neuralink. I say this all the time. <laughs> we have a Neuralink, and we can just have Google Calendar as a brain. I mean, and, uh, we that transition has that. to be inevitable, right? I mean, I if if you just take any technological advancement and extrapolate it out for another 300 year period, we went from having a joystick and a red button in 1980 to having fully immersive virtual augmented reality experiences in 2021. So push it out another 300. Like, does that, <laughs> when you think about that shit, does that like excite you? Does that scare you? Knowing what you know about the brain. And... I really don't care. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think. You're like, I, I bought a house. No, it I doesn't don't excite me. Shit. I would not want to live on this earth if you couldn't feel. I, I, as much as I, I'm single, I don't, I'm not dating anyone. And I, I, I have my own thoughts on that and why. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think, uh, I also thought like, I, I don't want to be with somebody, but I, I, this is where I'm at. And I like that. I like where I'm at, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's also, it's also, it reminds me of, you know, I still have emotional swings of life when it, and it all really deals with people. Mm -hmm. It all deals with people and it doesn't have to be 
close friends. You mean you person, you personally. Me personally. Yeah. And if I didn't have those feelings, I mean, I would feel like a deadbeat, you know? I, I, I could get emotionally moved by, my super showed up yesterday and we had like a 20 minute discussion. I just met this guy. And he talks about his martial arts practice from the who Philippines. Are, sorry, I missed. Who are you talking about? My super. What's a super? Sorry. But a su- so in New York, you have um, your super who manages the building. Manages gotcha. all the- cool. We're on the same page. <laughs> Philippines. Uh, so Balintawak is the martial arts. Uh, I think this is it. Hold on. Let me look this up real quick. Martial arts. It's all good because when it gets edited, it'll sound like you found it right away. So So, he comes up to look at my fridge because I'm trying to renovate a little bit and he's going to help me get a contractor and whatnot. I just met this guy and um, he talks to me about his practice of martial arts and um, which is called Balintawak. It's from the Philippines. His name's Kyron. And he's from Trinidad. I remember his birthday. How do I remember this guy's birthday? He tells me, he tells me his birthday. I tell him my birthday. And uh, he later on texts me the, you know, that he's going to send me an email. And I said, you know, August 1st is his birthday. He remembers my birthday, September 10th. Like, why do I care about that? I don't know. Why do you? Because, because that, <laughs> these, these are the moments that make us feel alive, that make us feel like we're taking up space, you know? So do I you think- feel I think, like in between moments like that? I, I live for those moments. Well, then there must be a, a lot of them, I assume. Tons. Well, that's Tons. great. You're saying you're, you're, but you're, what you're getting at is like this ability to feel, have a connection to something otherwise irrelevant, such as someone's birthday that you're going to meet maybe five times in your whole life. It's that ability is what makes the human experience special and why we should lean on those emotions and connections. Absolutely. I think, well, also remembering that just as, as special as that moment could have been that it's temporary. Mm-hmm. And that is the yin and yang is attachment and letting go, knowing that moments happen and then, and then they, they, they're gone. See, and- I, th- so I, I, I got to ask you this because I, I couldn't agree with more. I think like impermanence is like the most constant thing in the universe that things are just about to change all the time. And they are. And when I think of like mental health and I, I will say this, like, admittedly, I'm not someone historically who's suffered from what I would call like mental health issues or depression. I know people that have and watching them go through these experiences or, or seeing it from a distance. I know that even on my like worst day, what I feel is it pales in comparison to what I've watched them go through. So I don't feel comfortable saying that, like I struggle with mental health, but my ignorant problem is that I look at things like what people are going through and I go, but why can't you just recognize the impermanence of it? Why can't you just recognize that the way that you're feeling is going to go away? How do you speak to that? And then how do you include also the fact that in some cases there's truly neurological differences in the way that people feel like some people don't have the tools neurologically to actually deal with certain things that others do. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll first say that to speak to your last point is that mental health, taking care of your mental health is an absolute privilege. It, it, it is a white people problem. Mm-hmm. I will say that. I mean, there are plenty of people on the planet that have zero access to mental health. It's not even their realm of thought that you can go and seek out another person to talk to them, to hear your emotions. Right. I mean, come <laughs> on. This is the U S capitalizes on every it's a, it's we're we're a capitalist nation. We will find ways to make money on every type of 
and uh, change, um, excitement, whatever, emo- capitalize on emotions. Mm-hmm. So let, let's just, <laughs> let's just rewind back to 1800 where people are killing each other and there's really no, there's no punishment. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's all perspective. The world of mental health in some ways is way, way overstretched. And, um, you know, I, I, there was a, a statistic from Pew Research that I read the other day, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you the numbers. I'm going to ask you to guess the numbers. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to tell you the source until after, because you sure. might joke me. <laughs> um, okay. How people across the world responded in 2020 when asked if they or someone they know suffers from anxiety or depression. What? So, what? What's the percentage of people who personally feel anxious or depressed? on how they responded to 2020. And specifically to the pandemic, or they just happen to be pulled in that year? You're asking specifically, to, like how many people Global in response numbers, to the pandemic? How many people are personally anxious and depressed based on how they responded to 2020 pandemic? Probably 80%. And then what percentage of people they know who's anxious or depressed? Like when they're thinking of their peers? If they're thinking of somebody else, what, what answer they- they probably think that 85 to 90% of the people that they know. So reverse that it's 20%. It's 19%. And that's, this is New York post small statistic that happened to be in the corner of one page that had nothing else relevant to mental health on the page. It was just a little peer research poll. Now I didn't go up and look up how they pulled the data, but it doesn't matter. That could have been the opposite. And people go run away with that. Right. So my point is, is not that many people are anxious and depressed. (laughs) Right. What we see going back to vision, going back to fear is what we start to believe. And it becomes groupthink bias. Everybody's anxious. Everybody's depressed. We have problems, 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 problems. Here's a, here's ADHD medication. Not that many people are anxious and depressed. And by the way, we're all on the spectrum. We're human beings. We are supposed to have anxiety and stress and we are supposed to feel sad and depressed. This is the ebbs and flows of life unless you wanna conform and just be like everybody else. How do you teach people that that's okay? Because I agree with you. I, I think that those are... It's back to that infamous thing. There, now, listen, there are, there are plenty of people that actually experience chronic hysteria, anxiety that is debilitating. It's a very small percentage. I think it's less than 10%, 5%. I don't know the numbers. It's very small. Well, what do you tell the people that aren't part of that group? How, how do you talk to someone about the, the fact that maybe feeling depressed or sad here and there or anxious about an exam coming up or a promotion that you may be up for, whatever it is, how do you help people learn that that's okay? It's okay to feel that way. It's normal to feel that way. Is the answer. You don't. Because I am a big believer that everything should happen naturally. As a therapist, I don't help people. I just listen Mm -hmm. and I ask questions to understand what the actual numbers and patterns are. I just look for accuracy. I look for themes and patterns and accuracy. And then I say, here's what I think the accuracy is. What do you think? Here are are words that you've been using. What do you think about that? Here, you are not getting any feedback from the outer world you're only using your internal voice. What do you think about that? So it's so it sounds like kind of like habit coaching, right? Is to through open-ended questions and identification help people see what is in front of them that they're struggling to see. All I want to do in my business is make people curious and build habits around it. I I, I think curiosity 
about who you are is the biggest game changer you can do for your mental health. And if you create habits on in an environment that reminds you to stay curious about yourself, I think you're in a good place. As long as you're taking action, consistent action. And that means discomfort, a lot of discomfort, a lot of test and retest, social, social exposure. It really comes down to, can you care less about what people think? How do you practice that? More with who you are. Cause that's a scary thing. How do you, how do you, you individually practice caring less about what people think? Oh, I don't know. I, I deal with it every day. I care about that. I care about what people think. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. And I think it's good. You have to care about what people think or else you become a sociopath. You just, well, well, that's conflicting though. You're... People think plus complete dissociation or any regard of moral morale is being a sociopath. Uh, but most people aren't in that camp and you could care about, you don't have to care about what other people think and still be a functioning part of society. And those are artists. Those are creative. Um, and I think uh, I try my best to stay curious and stay close to my subconscious. And the only way to stay close to your, your subconscious is to not attach too much to your own thinking. Do you mean that from a meditative standpoint, like you actively practice recognizing that thoughts are there, but not becoming emotionally tied to them? Or do you mean it, like it is a form just of general daily practice? Yeah, it's a form. There's, there's the formal meditation that I practice, but yes, it okay. is a form of functional meditation. It's just self-awareness and there always has to be a reward system in order for a habit to continue. I don't know if you believe that, but I, I believe that. I'm not sure. I guess I, I haven't considered that. So I don't know if I believe it or not. But do you I, mean I believe the Pavlov's dogs that when the, when a dog gets a treat mm-hmm. and it's connected with a bell, every time they hear the bell, they think they're going to get a treat. The so same how, but how would you build that reinforcement or not, sorry, not reinforcement, the reward system into someone like, let's say someone was dealing with consistent anxiety around the same issue in their life over and over. And you've helped them identify that that's something that they want to remedy. How do you build a rewards? What, what, like, I guess, what would be a reward system when you say that, what would be a reward system for positively handling a previously anxious situation other than the fact that you're no longer anxious? It's not like, okay, every time you think about your job and you don't get anxious, I want you to have a cookie. It's not that simple, right? I think, I think getting rid of the anxiety is the first problem, is the first theory that causes an issue. When we, when we think that we are going to get rid of anxiety, that is the first step in the wrong direction. So there shouldn't be a reward system around getting rid of it. Rather... when we have anxiety, we should be curious about why we feel that way. And when we become curious about why we feel that way, we switch modes into panic, fear, into, hmm, slow thinking brain. Daniel Kahneman, think fast and slow. He talks about fast thinking brain. Did you read this book? I've read parts of it but I'm familiar with the concept. Either way, if you read parts of it, great book. Think fast is our reaction, mm-hmm. you know, US culture, fear, fear, fear. The Dow is plunging. Right. Go buy <laughs> everything. Yeah. Twice, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and to, wait, why do I even give a shit about the Dow plunging? Why, what kind of state of mind am I in? Do I even care about what's in front of me right now? Why do I feel anxiety? What is it? Do I feel lonely? Do I not feel connected? Do I not enjoy what I'm doing? Do I like where I live? This most obvious things in front of you. Once you slow down and go there, you then switch to a slow thinking state 
like doing a complex algebra equation. Can't just two plus two equals four. You have to sit and think, okay, I'm gonna have to move this over to the other side, divide by whatever. You then become curious and then you can start getting clarity. When you feel clarity, there's relief. When you have some sense of direction into your own hysteria, then you, and you could tie it back to a source, then you could start making an action plan off of it. Or you then create a new neural pathway of, hey, this is, I experienced this anxiety before, pathway one. When you fire it with another, you know, it fires together, wires together. When you fire it with another thought of, oh, maybe it, because I, when I thought about this last time, because I don't feel like I have a solid group of support, or I feel like I, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing anymore. Hmm. What can I do about that? Then it's, then it becomes, well, now, now that I figured this out, maybe I can create a new path. Maybe I could find something that I enjoy doing, or maybe the, the solution becomes more tangible when you sit and think about things. And so when that happens, cause I, I would imagine this is kind of that moment where I, I can only speak to this from like years of meditation where for the first years of meditating, everything was just, it didn't make sense. And I thought I was just trying to get better at sitting on a cushion. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to see that you get these rare moments in your day where you realize that you're having a moment in your day. And that mm -hmm. is a win there. That's, it's awareness. It's curiosity. It's, oh my God, I'm standing in front of the line about to order food. I didn't ever know that I was here before. I would just be about my day. And so you start to get these moments, you get more and more of those moments where you're realizing what you're doing when it's happening. And that to me seems like a huge win. Is that where you implement some sort of reward system for these people? So they get pathway one, I'm feeling anxious. Pathway two, that's because I don't trust my support system. That to me seems like they're accomplishing the, the concept, right? They're getting it in the moment. And what, that, that, that moment is specific to that moment, by the mm -hmm. way. You're going to have a different, quote unquote, anxiety at 3 p.m. later on in the day. Totally. And it could be anticipating a phone call. It could be. Okay, why do I anticipate? Why do I feel there was an, uh, in, this, in this book, Magic of Believing? I know you asked me what book I'm reading. That's the book I'm reading. It talks about anticipating a phone call. We have this fear uh, that if we are about to receive bad news, we just prepare. You right. felt this before. 100%. Right? A text, a phone call. You listen to a voice. I get anxious every time I listen to a voicemail. <laughs> I, I don't get anxious where I'm like debilitated, just a, right. an anticipatory <laughs> stress, if you will, not necessarily yeah. anxiety. And I, I like to correct and replace anxiety with the more accurate term when I, when I can. It's anticipatory stress that it, it could be anxiety because you're uncertain about what the message is going to be. So, but there, when you can think about that. Okay. And this is where procrastination happens for a lot of people. When, when you procrastinate and listening to your voicemails, ask yourself why and ask yourself, can you deal with it? And ask yourself, do I really need to be this stressed about it? <laughs> ask yourself, okay, what happens when I do get bad news? Can I deal with it? Um, yeah, you can. And um, can you, can you, actively dissociate and listen to the, the message at the same time dissociating meaning you're detaching from the the stress and anxiety and actually just physically going through the motions like athletes do athletes totally. are professionals at dissociating and performing what are, what are your thoughts on all the mental health surrounding sports right now i feel because i feel like it is ever present like that is happening and and it's being talked about for the first time it seems in a while maybe i just don't pay attention to this enough but it seems like this past year and with the olympics that mental health is being brought to the forefront my knee-jerk response is it's annoying and i feel guilty saying that mm -hmm. because uh once again it just goes into the system of capitalism 
It's it's the currency right now. It goes into the system of capitalism. And there's going to be all, you know, there's going to be ways to capitalize on the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and there's going to be little action that's taken. I think it's great that athletes are speaking up because athletes, uh, athletes absolutely get the last, uh, they're not as, because they're so tough and, and cocky and, and they're, in a, they're making a lot of money, mm-hmm. professional athletes they're the last person to, to be paid attention to when it comes to, well, you're in a good place. Like Kyrie Irving, shut up. You make millions of dollars. And you know, this is what, I don't know, Stephen A. Smith or St- Skip Bayless. I forget. I think it was Skip Bayless. Shut up, play the game, do your job. You know, okay. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. There man, I could go on a whole. Oh, I go like this. I've been looking forward to talking about this specifically because having been like a, a former athlete, I remember how stressful it was, but thank God it was stressful. Like those stresses were what drove me to try to ski at the level that I skied. Like if I, sometimes I think about it, I'm like, if I just had an easy out, yeah. How many hours I spent like sitting in my room and visualizing my run or walking myself from the car through the lot to the mountain, to the run, to the award show, like the entire experience. It was a big part of, maybe this is selfish. It was a big part of my experience as an athlete Mm -hmm. and that mental toughness and fortitude that I had to develop to be successful in the sport transpired into a lot of other areas of my life. And I'm really thankful for that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I see, man, it's tough because then on the flip side, there are athletes and people in situations that didn't ever speak up that really needed to and lost their lives or caused harm to be. And so like, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If in those situations, it's skiing specifically, there's several athletes that took their own lives from the stresses that they were feeling. And I, I wish in hindsight, they had somewhere that they could go and talk to, you know, if it was present day, they probably could, they would, because it's more commonplace, but it's a hard, sometimes I don't know how I feel about it. It, it, Let's just, let's just, let's just be clear. There is no clear answer. Just like when we talk about abortion rights, I mean, there's some clear answers to a lot of people and there's some clear answers to another group of people. The reason why it's been a discussion for decades now is because the answer is in the gray area. And the answer for mental health, we are in a very woke quote unquote culture and it's, it's great in many ways. And it's also dangerous in many ways. And Carl Jung says it perfectly, who's a psychologist that studied and challenged Freud on his theory in psychology, is that beware of what you become aware of. I don't know if this is verbatim, but beware of what you become aware of because it you don't you might not know how to deal with it. So people who are, who are, you know, becoming more woke and realizing all the sensitivities that people may have, um, it's going to bring a lot of shame and guilt. Me too movement. It's, it, it, it is, it was bound to happen. If it didn't happen now, it would happen later. Right. So now we are aware of what women might be dealing with. And as a woman, I'm woke. I don't even know how to feel about some of this stuff. Right. I don't even know how to process some of this stuff. It's, it's really fascinating as a woman. And, and, and I'm not a quote unquote feminist. I, I, I don't like labeling myself. I, I think I, I like to, as much as I'm against calling people humans because it's objective, we're all humans. And we all deserve to feel special and we all deserve equal rights. And I think with women, it's, we're now aware of the sensitivities that, that 
women maybe have gone through that was purely unconscious. It wasn't really talked about in the 1900s or even 20 years ago. But now there's this sensitivity around how we treat women and serves a good purpose, net positive purpose in my belief. But also now it's slippery slope. We're doing this with everything. And how do you deal with that? It's a fair question. It's a, this goes back to the, it's like the, the rate at which things improve or change is it's seemingly exponentially faster than in the past. And you asking that question, it, it's, there's no timeout. There's no, everything will keep, you know, it'll keep moving forward. And there may be hundreds, thousands, millions of people asking that same question might not get the time to think about it actually and answer it, mm-hmm. which is an important thing to talk about because to arrive at a rational decision in whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's making decisions about your children in school, or if it's about equality and the rights of all the people in the country, it's okay to want to think about things Mm -hmm. and work through stuff and talk to people about it who maybe have a different viewpoint than you or are coming at it from a different place. The the, The example I always think of, this is my favorite example whenever it comes to like polarity in ideas is that you have two people standing like you and I are face to face across from each other. And on the ground, there's a six. And I ask you what you see and you look down and you say nine. And I look down and I say, no, that's a six. And you look down and you say, no, it's a nine. And we're both 100% right. Because from our viewpoint, our perspective and where we're standing, neither of us are lying. And we're definitely not lying to the other person intentionally. Right. We're just calling it as we see it. And so many issues are like that. Mm -hmm. And it's unfair to cut and dry it without having a chat. I I think I I, I like that example a lot because there are plenty of issues that resemble that. And there is no clear answer. And when we force ourselves to find an answer, it becomes egotistical. Mm-hmm. And we think with our heads, not our hearts. Yes. And the ego is really the core of our, 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 um, our failures or our, how, we, how we fall is our ego for sure and, and the pride attached to it or um as a as a country you know unless you have a really really good military which we do and i respect all of our veterans and people who serve in the military because that is what gives us our freedom is that you know even as a country most of the now i think any type of failure of empires that combust it ties back to ego thinking that you're better than somebody thinking you're more territorial you want more you deserve this we deserve this we you are lesser than we deserve that territory therefore we will go to the furthest extent to get it and it happens on an individual level, it happens on a global level, and it will repeat, repeat until the end of time. It will repeat until the end of time. And in between time, there's all this, these shifts of people wanting to control their security, their, their well-being, their money, their, their life. So it, it, in a broader perspective, when you zoom out, it comes down to control and ego. And when it comes to this stuff about the mask and the vaccinations, oh my God, I'm vaccinated. I was not going to get vaccinated. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, and I'm not a vaxxer. Why do I have to be either one? Well, this goes, it's, <laughs> you know? it goes back to the, the six and nine. It's funny that you say that. I'm the same way. Like I'm vaccinated. Lauren and I got vaccinated last April. 
And I think it's a good idea. I also, I, I respect people's desire to want to think through things, even if that's not how I felt, right? It, it pretty much came out. We went and got it. It doesn't mean that I'm now trying to banish every person who didn't do that to the, the outer realms of America. But we, there are so many people I feel like on the fringe that aren't out of principle because this is the dialogue in the country. It is this, I'm right, you're wrong across the board in every facet. And that's a really, really unhealthy way to exist together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can, I can argue both sides. Um, but it, it's just another example of ego and judgment. And at, at the same time, when the vaccine, I mean, because it's connected to health, it's, a, it's more sensitive and the boundaries are a little tighter. When, when things are putting health at risk, other people's actual health, then the boundaries are a little bit more clear versus what gender pronouns you should be using. Now, the way that, the way that I, your psycho, psycho, um, your psychological health, if you're not called a them, when you want to be called, uh, you know, when people are calling you a she and you want to be called them, are we harming you? Are we, are we damaging your health? No. Well, I don't know when you're not vaccinated and you're putting there's a risk now, if, you know, it can be discussed on what the actual risk is. So that, you know, things come down to numbers, science, and, and, and science and math really usually on our boundaries. But a lot of it now is ego and it's annoying. The and- thing with the, the vaccines to me, and I, I'm not going to quote numbers because I don't have them. I'm not going to speak to statistics because I'm not currently reading them as we speak. But yeah. the way that I think about that is if you don't want to wear your seatbelt, that's fine. And if I want to wear mine, that's fine. But the difference with the vaccines and seatbelts is that not getting the vaccine is akin to unbuckling randomly other people's seatbelts without telling them. Yeah, it's apples to oranges. Yeah, it is not. I just don't care. I'm not, you know, I know cigarettes are bad, but I'm going to smoke them by myself in my house in the corner with the window shut. That's not what's going on. It's that every time that you light one up, you're putting cigarettes in other people's mouth kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where I see uh, a difference in other issues relative to this issue. Yeah. It's the involuntary nature of what is happening to someone else based on your choice. Yeah. I'm not surprised that, I mean, the, the, the approval rating in the government or the trust in the government, it's at its lowest point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a changing of presidents, a major one last year in the midst of a pandemic when everybody's online screaming at each other in the midst of George Floyd dying, being killed. And uh, which is awful, by the way, I watched the video it was awful. No human being should be treated like that. Yes. Despite whatever he's done in his past, no human being should be treated like that. And it was a confluence. It really was a perfect storm of things happening, polarity, vaccine, politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now we're, we're now we're in that. That's what we're in. And honestly, I mean, there's something amazing about being in that because a lot of expression is coming out. It's, it's, it's scary and it's um, the most lively time we might feel alive in our lifetime. I, I could not agree with you anymore. And I, I think first and foremost, it goes to say that, you know, I have not experienced <clears throat> knock on wood personal loss as a result of the pandemic. I don't know anyone in my immediately family circle or, or extended circle that has passed away from COVID-19 or 
from anything involved with it. So I speak from that place and saying that this last year and a half, two years has been chaotic and wild, but it's been one of the most important times that we've been alive. Agreed. And it's fucking powerful in a real, real, real way. And a lot of socioeconomic, psychological, political things are moving at a rate that I don't know (laughs) we're accustomed to deal with. Mm -hmm. But that in and of itself also contributes to how special it is to be alive right now if you're able to have the awareness to recognize that you're there. Definitely. And to go back to mental health, I think it's a period where if you're not connected with your internal, then you you could get lost very quickly. And um, that's happened. That's happened probably with all of us. But the pandemic has really showed us how to deal with ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> chaos. <laughs> it's actual chaos on social media, out on the streets in New York. There's helicopters, there's curfew at 8 p.m. It's literal chaos. We don't know what chaos looks like, but that was chaos. We don't know what chaos looks like. That's the thing. When we think chaos, you think people on the battlefield in 1876 shooting each other. Maybe it's squid games. I don't know. You see bloodshed, it's chaos. That's not necessarily what chaos looks like. We don't know what it looks like now. What it looks like was June 2020. Everybody's running around with their heads cut off, pointing fingers at each other, looting stores, boarding up entire New York City, that was chaos. That was a trip. Dude, we were living like on second Santa Monica. I, so you've been to the Equinox in Santa Monica at the time. We were living two blocks north of that. And I was sitting in my living room while eating dinner. And I'm watching a live new, news feed of like two blocks down, literally. And that whole area, I don't know if you've been back to Santa Monica since the, the riots and everything. But like it, Santa Monica is totally fucked up. The the amount of stores that like closed, the vandalism, the graffiti, watching people literally just walk through the front window of a store and walk out with all the gear they could handle with no regard. I mean, it was like you said, I mean, we don't, we, I, I agree. We do not know what chaos is. We don't know what chaos is like if there was a water shortage globally, like that type of chaos. Mm -hmm. But the closest thing to chaos that I've ever seen in my life was definitely that week there where it was like full anarchistic expression in some cases Uh on live TV. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking wild. Yeah. Yeah. And don't forget in January this year, the Capitals rioted and broken into, I mean, what (laughs) happened? (laughs) I'm like watching this on TV going, wait, that's like our cap. That's our capital. That guy's, dressed like a Viking, that person literally just got shot. Holy shit, they're scaling. Like that, I personally, I haven't even processed yet that that actually happened here in the United States. Right. I don't think I have. What the fuck was that? (laughs) So what's interesting is when there's external chaos, there's internal peace. You have to balance it out. It has to be balanced out. When one partner is anxious the other partner's calm when one partner's really angry and the other partner's really angry then uh oh this is not good but usually <laughs> usually when you meet up with somebody and their energy is ah then there's a balance of okay let me listen to this person let me hear them out and there's always a balance of energies happening And when there's a lot of external chaos, inevitably, we have to be able to survive it. And in order to survive it, the most efficient way to do it is to be calm. Right. The most energy efficient way to get through it is to be calm. And it forces us to have some type of internal 
calmness. Mm-hmm. We can't we can't process everything that's going on. It's it's impossible. So it's it, it forces us to have some internal um, connection and peace, which is useful, and that's happening at all times with our own individual selves. We could cause our 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 own internal chaos. Mm-hmm. And some people can live their lives like that and, and be energy inefficient. And, and, and once you learn how to balance your chaos, we need chaos. We need chaos. We need yin and yang. We need to have our chaos. We need to have our anxious moments. We need to let them happen. But we also need to be able to balance it out with the, the, the other side. We, at, at all times, everything's stress management, energy management, chaos management. I and think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, unfortunately, we're strapped for time here. And I want to give you a moment to kind of like say your piece, let people know where they can find you, how they can reach out to you. There's so many things that honestly, we didn't even get to talk about that I want to talk about. So we'll absolutely have to do this again in the future. I totally anticipated that this is exactly how the, how this would go, that we would get going, find a tangent and just go head on it. But um, in the future, I'd love yeah, to talk about fast. Wow. I know. And I'm learning a lesson that I think I just need to plan two hours for these because uh, they tend to just go over. So We'll come back. We'll do another episode. Absolutely. And in with that, we'll come up with even more questions and things to talk about regarding mental health and energy economy. I, that was one thing I wanted to get to that we didn't. So we'll save it for the future. But where can people get a hold of you? Where can they find you? How do they reach out? Say your spiel, shameless product plug. Yeah, yeah. You could, you, well, to learn about me, you could go to my website, which is rachelmariotti.com. And on Instagram, I am active on Instagram. Rachel Mariotti is my handle, and that's it, really. Those are the two areas that um, you know I that I communicate. Oh, I communicate socially through Instagram. So, if people want to reach out or message me or like something, you could do all that there. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. I I was looking forward to this from the second that I decided I was going to do a podcast, and I already look forward to the one that we do in the future. So. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for thinking of me and thank you for your time and being curious. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll catch you later. All right. Bye. You've been listening to the main idea podcast profiling pros within the health, wellness, and sports industries. It's real and raw discussions about how real people lean on themselves to accomplish great things. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We know we had fun. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with us on social media. Till next time, this is the Main Idea Podcast. Listen. Listen. Learn. Learn. Evolve. Evolve.